Well, thank you very much for turning up for the uh, Wednesday seminar. Uh, Richard has given me a speech to uh, relay to you. Um, you know without aware there's two types, of, two types of research philosophies. The first is the haste and hype school, and the second is the caution and rigour school. And Richard here behind me uh, certainly belongs to the latter. His work is very novel, considered and detailed. That's what he asked me to say. I first met Richard about 20 years ago, at least 20 years ago. I was in two minds whether to go to this meeting on schizophrenia or to attend another meeting. I chose this other meeting, which happened to be on 3D aspects, stereopsis, at the Royal Society down in London. And as is the case, the lure of the muffins and the coffee proved too much for me, and I wandered in and bought something, and there was Richard sat at the table. And uh, we had many common interests, it turned out, for the rest of the day. We chatted about all aspects, neural and uh, visual, and in particular, eye movement control. And uh, it seems that Richard has spent most of his life thinking about neural aspects. He started his early career as a electrophysiologist and worked on very interesting theoretical issues, one of which was called the horopter. Now, the horopter is a particularly interesting concept, and it was um, first uh, trialled by Ptolemy, and then Al-Hazan, and then Johannes Muller, and Richard felt it was worthy of continuing. The horopter is this sort of imaginary sort of, uh, area in space that uh, excites corresponding points on the eye, which, of course, he's interested in uh, coordinate space and how we neurally programme that. From there, he moved on to extraocular muscle movements and simulations, and for the last 20 years has been continuing aspects of neural understanding for eye movements and spatial perception. I should point out, in those 20 years, that Manchester United have won uh, numerous Premier Championships, uh, two European Cups, and Richard and I have probably written a few papers that should have been written in much shorter time. There is... There are two important things now that in Richard's life. Uh, the first is that um, he's taken on board Newton's ideas of uh, mechanics and has become a horologist and he's interested in escapements and uh, fuses and such things. And his most heroic performance is that um, in recent times, he's the only person I know that has read Marcel Proust's six volumes of Remembrance of Things Past. And for that alone, I think he should be applauded. Uh, today, he's going to chat about uh, aspects of brain embedding, a technique which allows him to understand spatial coordinates. So, Richard Clement of No Fixed Abode. Thank you very much. Thank you. Thank you. Thanks. Okay. Thank you for coming. For most animals, the most important things are other animals. So we're very good at actually picking up moving things, and especially moving things with certain limited constraints. This is a very well-known video of just the corner points of the limbs. But you only need just a few points moving with this constraint to get a very good feel of someone moving. So we're very good at picking up this biological motion. And the reason why we can pick up this biological motion is that the brain uses a lot of generic tuning mechanisms which pick up these low-dimensional aspects, precisely because it's low-dimensional. And the most important of that is probably what's referred to as cosine tuning, in the sense that if you have a neuron which has a preferred movement orientation or a preferred stimulus response orientation, so it peaks in one direction of movement, not in others, the tuning is almost always a cosine function. And this drop-off 
allows it quite a lot of pre-capabilities, and it appears both on the sensory side, the motor side, and virtually every animal system we know. So my question is very simply that I really want to check out is, what is the scope of this sort of uh, neural uh, representation? So the plan I'm going to give is I'm going to just first of all really introduce some visual methods because my background is partly in visual science about how we might deal with things which got quite a few dimensions and how we might visualize some of these dimensional systems and introduce uh, feature embedding. Then I'm going to tackle this and apply this to a couple of neural representations, in particular the neural representation of uh, stereoscopic vision and the eye position commands, just to show an example on the sensory side and the motor side. And finally, I want to, again, coming from a vision background, say why is it that we can't see some of these higher dimensional things and how can we um, perhaps think about interacting with some of the low dimensional representations which we have at different layers in the brain. So the first concept I wanted to come across is um, because these movements are very, usually very smooth, they're physical movements, they actually, the terms of coordinates that you have to specify them, they're all smoothly changing. So they actually construct if you plot them as points of coordinates in a space, form a smooth sort of space. And this is referred to as a differential manifold, but the whole point is you can't actually talk about those and get the coordinates from them unless you put them into another space. And the type of space you put them into is Euclidean space. And this is just very simple. Primarily, it's that line along the bottom, the u dot v, a space in which you can work out the projection of one direction on another. Now, usually we're used to that in geometric space. We have three dimensions. We can automatically say, if you've got a point, you can calculate the projection onto the axis very simply. And that's usually the way it's portrayed. And then we think about, because we call it Euclidean space, how can we represent it in four dimensions? And it becomes slightly trickier. Maybe we can use time. But I want to point out that on the neural side, because practically all the neurons are cosine tuning, they can actually all representing things in Euclidean space of up to about n dimensions, however many you want. And so a lot of things can be represented by features rather than actual spatial representation, but they have the same algebraic structure. So, for example, in a feature space, you might use a red-green and a blue-yellow axis. And if you have any color within that range, then that can be plotted also as a projection onto those two axes, the blue-yellow and the red-green axis, and it has the same structure. So instead of talking about things in a spatial uh, domain, one could equally well talk about them in a color domain. And this allows us to go and use different colors, different orientations for much higher dimensional representations. So the basic idea that the stimuli things we're looking at are some collection of points, like this uh, is a sphere on the surface of the ball. But to actually um, represent each point in that with a coordinate. You know it's two-dimensional. You can specify how far around you are and how far up and down with you. But that's just a parameter. Both are actually coordinates. So for each point has a definite set of coordinates, an n tuple of numbers. You need to put it, plot it in three-dimensional space. So I want to make a distinction here between something like all the spaces that are surfaces I'm going to talk about are going to be two-dimensional. But they're going to be uh, embedded in this three-dimensional space or four-dimensional space. And embedding here means simply that there's a one-to-one -one correspondence between every point on the surface and an n-tuple of coordinates. So this is a representation of a sphere in feature space. Now, you probably thought you... Well, I worked, worked with someone um, in my uh, defense establishment, and he had to explain his work to uh, the boss man coming around, and it was... Uh, 
he took uh, an image processing one where he took a picture and then ran it through a series of filters like the early stage of human vision and got four pictures. And the boss man just looked at him and said, well, excellent, you've taken one picture I understood and turned it into four I don't understand. And you probably feel the same way about this one. But what I've done here is simply represented each of the x, y, and z coordinates in terms of a feature. One of them is the vertical line. It can either be left or right. And I think it's, um, as you can imagine that, say, going from the top to the bottom, that would be corresponding to, say, of the sphere, the blue line on the right, which is changing its orientation. So I've just changed its orientation slightly as a coordinate. And then for going around the sphere, you can have coordinates of, uh, I've got light and dark, so some of the arrow, the vertical arrows change between light and dark, so that's one coordinate. And then you have a third coordinate, the Z coordinate, and that's simply the orientation of the vertical line. So all I'm trying to show there is that there are other different pictorial aspects. And the advantage of these is that you can just see these at a glance. The question is whether we can get more information out of these. So what I want to do is go on and try looking at some four-dimensional ones where you couldn't do a geometric picture, but you can do this sort of picture. So first of all, here are some different surfaces. This is referred to as um, the flat torus. And what it is is you imagine the two vertical, uh, the two arrows we've got the same number of arrow points on linked together. So the top is glued to the bottom and the left is glued to the right. So this object traveling across it hits one barrier and appears at the same point below it. So if it goes up there, it hits and it goes down. So I'm using a, a well-known representation of having a little, because it's a surface, we can put it in two dimensions and we can say what bit we glue with which. And in the next one, the Klein bottle, I'll just let it get to the corner, what I've done is one where you have actually reversed the top and the bottom ones, so you get a twist. Oops. So this one, because the bottom and the reversed, it swaps direction. So these are, in terms of visual stimuli, these are perfectly possible visual stimuli. How should we see these as objects, and how will the brain encode these? Well, what I've done is shown how you could build up um, a sort of a two-dimensional color uh, representation of the flat torus one. It can be described by a very simple equation because a torus is supposed to be simply like a donut shape. So you have one set of circles, another set of circles, and you link it to every point on the first set of circles. And that's mathematically what it defines it as. So you can define it by two equations, but this cos alpha, sine alpha, the first two coordinates, and cos beta, sine beta, the next two coordinates. And that's obviously the equations of two circles with just in two different axes. So for the you can then just write uh, the first, um, the top left column shows one representation of cos alpha given by the orientation of the vertical line. The next one shows a representation of sine alpha as the color of the vertical line, light dark. And the third one shows uh, the orient cos beta as an orientation of um, a horizontal orientation, the horizontal line. And finally, you can add the sine beta on. So you can put these together, and that then gives you an equivalent diagram for the flat torus. Now, we can't draw that, so that's a way of representing it. 
And we can do the same thing for the flat climb bottle. And at least in this way, we can see immediately the patterns are different. And what I'm interested in are things we can see at a glance so that we can actually use the visual system rather than the actual thinking side of it. And if you have it like this, what advantage does this give over, say, just the simple representation with the outlines with the arrows? Well, at least you know exactly where each point is actually on this diagram, and you can relate it to a point in four-dimensional space. If you choose any one of those things, you can actually identify with a position in four-dimensional space. So any one of these two lines, say the yellow and the vertical gray one, corresponds to a particular position in Euclidean space. So one thing you can do with um, something like the Klein bottle is you can show it's made of two simpler things. And this is... Um, simply down the plane diagram, you draw a cut along where the white arrows are and divide it into two pieces. Now, because you've got two um, arrows which are glued together, the double arrows on the left and the right-hand side, you can just take off those two pieces which you cut off on the side and join those together. And you get something which looks like below. I've shifted the... I've sheared the um, stimuli back so that if you look at the pieces in the white uh, diagonal on the top, they all correspond to where the orientations in Euclidean space are on the bottom ones and similarly with the top. This one on the right there is what's known as a Mobius strip. It's simply what happens if you twist a piece of tape and turn it, turn it round and embed it in four dimensions. And the advantage of this is what you can see is that you've also got the same um, Mobius strip on the same side, but it seems as though it's in different positions, actually in Euclidean space. And one thing you can do is actually, if you look at the pattern, you can see, well, um, maybe there's a lot of yellow on the one side corresponding to the blue on the others. And you can just do a rotation. So that's all I did. I did a rotation of all those coordinate points in Euclidean space of the Mobius strip on the left. And if I did that, which is what I've done here, I've taken the original and then just simply rotated them around on the left. And now you can see that actually it's actually the same structure, just rotated at 180 degrees. Because if you rotate this one on the bottom left now, you get exactly the same structure as the one on the right. Remember when you're rotating them, you don't rotate the orientations of the two little arrows because they actually um, specify the orientation in Euclidean space. But if you look, say, at the point in the bottom left of the dark outlined one and the one in the top right of the white outlined one, you can see the same orientation. They're both a couple of the gray lines, a slightly uh, different orientation. So not only now do we know what, why this advances you, is that you get, as well as having a representation, which you can get by the formula of this object, you can actually now know that not only have you got two Mobius bands rotated to each other, but they're the same ones, identical Mobius bands, rotated at 180 degrees. So you're starting to get some idea about what the um, shape is. Oh, yes, and here I should have a limerick here. A mathematician named Klein thought the Mobius band was divine. Said he, if you glue the edges of two, you'll get a weird bottle like mine. So that's... And the same thing can be done for um, something called the real projective plane. This is simply what this is. is if you, it's imagine if you're like a camera, you have a projection, and you're looking at all the rays. They all come to the same point on the picture. So the, the real projective plane is made by taking a sphere and all the lines that go through a single point and then joining lines on opposite ends of the sphere so that they correspond to the same point. And it's fine for most of it, but it's when you get to doing the final lines that you get this small bit together. And in this one, you can do another dissection. What I've done there is I've actually rotated it round to make it circular and then chopped out a bit in the middle. And again, put these two together on the 
left-hand side to merge them together. And again, you can see if you jot, take the left-hand wind of the vertical block and join it up and reverse it with the, uh, so the arrows overlie, the black arrows overlie, you get again a Mobius band with the two lines joined up. So a real projective plane corresponds to a disk and um, a, a disk and a, a Mobius band. Now, another way of doing that would be to take, um, at the moment I've joined together the outside ones, you could join together the inside ones. So that's a description given by, uh, on the blackboard of Hilbert and kern Boslin of how you can get it. Accordingly, we can get a model of the Mobius strip from the region between two circles by identifying all the diametrically opposite pairs of points in a smaller circle. Now, for a vision person, there's a very simple bit of the brain which seems to do that, and that's in the blind spot. If you hold on the blind spot and you approach it from one bit, you appear to be joined up immediately at the point diametrically opposite. So it appears that we have a very simple embedding of a, a, a Mobius band in the brain in terms of the retina, but I'm not sure what the significance of this, but I thought you'd like to know that example. Okay, so the next part of the talk, what I'd like to go is just to say, well, okay, how, does this, um, how do we get these things? Given that we can represent visually different uh, objects of different dimensionality and embed them, how does the brain do this? What does it do with this? And the starting point is a very simple model neuron which computes the leucalidium product. So this just simply projects the projection onto a set of weights. So if it gives them a set of inputs, it'll just compute the weighted sum of these and it will then produce the projection onto whatever the weight vector is, the tuning curve. So this is well known. Probably the best known example of this is in motion coding where you have in V1, in the primary visual cortex, you have a set of neurons with all preferred orientations of lots of different preferred directions, all and each of them responds with cosine tuning. So as you move away from that direction, the response falls off. So if you have, as I've shown there, a stimulus on the left with a red line going, say, to the right, the response of all the neurons is shown on the, so the, the stimulus is on the left and the response on the right you see quite a number of neurons fire, and they fall off with this cosine uh, tuning. So at 45 degrees, it becomes half and, and so and so. And what you can do, individual neurons are really nasty things in terms of actually fidelity. They're not very good. They give lousy responses. They're very variable. Maybe you can get, if they have up to 1,000 pulses per second, you can maybe get 0 0.01 digital accuracy. So you can't do maths with them in this state and form. And the way that the brain seems to get around that is by using what's known as population vector coding. So it takes this responses, and rather than treating just an individual response of individual neuron as, as representing that stimulus, it adds them all together and says, okay, I'll add on, for each of the vectors shown by the light gray lines, I'll add on amount of that corresponding to the length of the red arrows. So that gives you a population code. And it's pretty accurate for most of the time, and it's also a lot more robust. So the bottom one shows a similar one for the next one. And that's probably the most common application of Europe. Uh, but you also get that in the cortex. So the brain can obviously do this embedding. It can take these things and put into any dimensionality of Euclidean space without any problem. So does this help us understand what's going on in the brain? Well, one of the things I would like to look at next is neuro-embedding of the real projective line. In this case, you got just instead of actually all the lines in three-dimensional space going through a point, you just got all the lines in a plane. So if you add join together each of the opposite uh, ends of the lines, you get a circle. 
And this is then the question is, how does the brain embed something like that? I mean, this is just, it could be a stimulus which you're looking at. If we have a single red line, then the responses correspond to, this shows an example of how you could do it in two-dimensional space on the right, where you have various preferred directions of the neurons, and each of these correspond to an orientation, and you can add them together. Now, what I want to show, show with that picture is that this is an embedding in two-dimensional Euclidean space. Each of the arrows have got different positions in two-dimensional Euclidean space. But the orientation associated with that changed twice as fast as the actual orientation of the arrows. So if the neuron's population code is just simply adding together those little light gray arrows to get its estimate, it then has a further interpretation where it interprets that as a particular orientation. Now, if you go in, if we don't try and understand the brain without actually understanding what its internal representation is, we get different results. Because if you look at the orientation turning tuning curve of the um, single neurons, they're actually going to be half the size of a 22.5 degrees because they're actually moving around twice in, on the represented in a circle. So if you're a psychophysicist, you measure this and you say, well, okay, the tuning curve there is uh, different for, say, the motor tuning curve, because actually it's uh, 22.5 degrees instead of 45 degrees, and maybe it hasn't got cosine tuning. But in fact, it's exactly the same mechanism if you interpret as an intermediate representation in terms of the Euclidean plane. So the next thing I wanted to do was have a look and see whether I could uh, look at maybe a couple of examples of how um, the brain might embed the real projective pain. So we can consider, say, having two eyes this time. So you've got a set of lines of orientation in both eyes, and that gives you four-dimensional space. And you can consider all the lines to the point which you're looking at. So we might, say, be looking at a line there. Both of the two favias of the two eyes correspond. We consider all the straight lines through there. And we want to know what the representation of that is, which should correspond to the real projective plane. Now, if I do that, I get something like that, which is not the same as a real projective plane. And there is a reason when I thought about this afterwards, in the sense that we have a problem with only two-dimensional views, in the sense that the two, the whole, all the lines which occur in the plane concerning the two eyes and the point of fixation will automatically project to the same uh, orientations on the retina. So they can't correspond, so we can't actually embed the real projective plane like that. But we get something quite similar. So what I've plotted here is the vertical uh, points correspond to the image from the uh, left eye. You get two parameters. One is the color, light and dark, and the other is the orientation, corresponding to the orientation of the line in the left eye. And the horizontal line corresponds to uh, the orientation in the right eye, where you've got two parameters again. And this is with distant view, quite a distance away. Oh, incidentally, why there are grey lines along the bottom and the sides is because of this, uh, that the two, as the orientation of the lines becomes similar to that of the uh, plane containing the eyes and the point of fixation, they all merge into one, so we can't distinguish them. And that's where it's falling down uh, on its representation. And as you move your eyes to closer, you get this more distorted and you get the swap over around the midline. So the center of the thing is where you've got lines in the vertical, and as they're moving towards you, moving away from you, they get a much greater change in the orientations in the two different eyes. So a similar one, um, another attempt to try and look at um, an embodiment of the real projected plane in the neural system is by Listing's law. This is a motor one. Now, Listing's law is simply it describes how the orientation of the eyes change with fixation. So 
What's shown in the picture is the after image of a cross as someone is standing, uh, looking with their head erect, looking at a distant object with an after image of a cross and projecting onto a vertical wall. And this goes back to Helmholtz and people like that. And from this, you can see that actually, it, although it can rotate, like it effectively is like a globe embedded in fatty tissue, so it effectively carries out rotations. It's restricted in what it can do, in the sense it only seems to rotate around two, has only two degrees of freedom, in the sense that uh, if it's making a vertical movement, for the after image of the cross to move like that, it has to be rotating around an axis like that and moving the eye upwards. And similarly, if it's... Uh, making a horizontal model, it has to be an axis like that and moving the eye from side to side. So what this tells us is the axis, orientation axis of the eye when it moves according to your normal eye movements has to lie in a plane, approximately uh, a vertical plane which goes through your head like this and covers the both ends. So because it's like a, a plane, it's also true is that if you rotate through 180 degrees on that side, you get to the same direction as if you rotated through 100 degrees on that side. So the two corresponding points on the other, other side of the plane combine together, just as in the outline diagram where we had the arrows for that of a real projective plane. So it's a nice example, if you could make movements of 180 degrees around the side, of a real, mechanical version of a real projective plane. Again, when I did that, I did the calculations, and this is a calculation, we have six muscles, um, uh, embedding the eye. So why this is interesting is actually it was mentioned first of all by Poincaré in his Science and Hypothesis in the sense that here's an example where you've got something with three degrees of rotation but immediately the motor command controlling it is governed by six muscles. So there are the two horizontal muscles on either side here moving your eyes from side to side, the two vertical recti muscles moving your eyes up and down and also a couple at oblique angle which are called the oblique muscles which move your eyes torsionally if not. So you've got six muscles, and that's quite disregarding all the different neurons that are in the brain that have got to embed it. So if you have to control it, you have to control all the signals to these. And in this case, what I plotted is three pairs of muscles, the horizontal, the vertical, and the oblique. And actually, I only plotted a small version of this because it can't mechanically solve the problems of doing it through 180 degrees. So again, I can't quite get the um, real projective plane, but I can get... Um, a small disk. So this corresponds to a small disk. So I've outlined the embedding in several dimensions and how we might visualize this. And I've outlined how the brain is using this quite a lot and why it's, we'd like to be able to understand what's going on in these intermediate representations between, say, single unit levels and higher up. But we're still not getting a feel from this of, say, what the shape of it is in the same way as we do for... Um, solid objects. And so I'd like to just test, why is it we can't understand them? So the, the original version of perhaps the best description of vision is what you see is what have to be present to create the retinal image. So if we present an image of a 3D object, you see a 3D object. But then you get the mathematicians on the other side who say, many authors claim that you cannot visualize four-dimensional space. This simply isn't true. It's true that you must vision four-dimensional Euclidean space differently from three-dimensional Euclidean space. And I think the key word there is visualization. What I'm hoping to show is that we can actually see things rather than visualizing things. So this is the real projective plane. Two different views on that. Now that's supposed to be the same object, but we just got two three-dimensional views of it. The trouble is, in the first time I plotted the first three uh, coordinates, the real 
real projected plane. And in the second one, I've plotted the next three coordinates of the real projected plane. And what do we see? In both cases, we have perfectly good solid objects because they're plotted in three-dimensional space. So what you'll see is a three-dimensional solid object. The question is, why is that? And I think the answer is that actually what we tend to look at is generic viewpoints. So if we have an object out there, we first of all have the projection on the retina. And because of the way the retina projects, and I've shown those outlines there, you tend to get clusters around the feature because you get more points and more uh, landing on the image actually around the extremities, the contours of the object. And that's especially enhanced by the fact that most of the early stages of the visual system are centre surround operations, which give you more output for these, uh, clusters, for these contours. Given those contours, for example, for the sphere, there's several different ones you could choose. Is there one which is better or worse? And the answer is we're very good at picking out generic contours. That means ones where, we, because again, we move around, ones where as you move around, the outline doesn't change too much. So that doesn't make much difference for the sphere, but for the um, torus, there's a big difference between, say, looking at an end on and looking at it with a hole. So if you want to recognize a polum into something, it's no good seeing it end on. You want to see the hole. So that's a much more important uh, viewpoint. So obviously, you can do the same thing when projecting down from a four-dimensional object to a three-dimensional object. And you can then say, well, which viewpoint is going to give me contours which are the most stable despite movement? And this is having a go with, this is a stereo. I'm not sure whether you can, you'd have to be able to cross your eyes if you want to see that. And I've done some handing out if you want some. I don't know where that. The point is that even if you fuse that in three dimensions, so it comes in three dimensions, after a while, it starts um, changing shape, and actually it looks more like something which is deforming, which is all that can happen, because you can't get two different viewpoints of the same object in, solid, uh, in three-dimensional viewpoints, which remain solid. But one thing you can do just by looking at the outline is maybe get a feel for how you can get the two different views that I said earlier on of the golden sort of version of the PD, uh, real projected plane. Sometimes it looked like a dimple surface and sometimes it looked like one she's got three dips. So I think the, what I take away from this is that whilst we're very good, because we're used to seeing objects in three-dimensional geometric space, we can have the neural capability of representing rotations up to three dimensions, but we don't have the neural representation for four-dimensional rotations, which is what you would need to see that these different things correspond to the same object. The only way we can see these is things that are deforming. So again, what I did was then take these contours and just out of interest, try to overplot them on the feature map representation. And the red blobs are then simply showing where most of the contours are lying. So if we imagine it, um, so we can get a feel for perhaps for the shape of this object. Certainly the two contours at either end, they're actually approximately uh, 90 degrees to each other, as shown in the uh, upper diagram. And they're the salient ones. And the middle one actually, I think, shows uh, where the two ones are crossing, just at the left there. The point about this is that if we can understand maybe how some of the contours are, we can enhance our two-dimensional feature representation to actually see where some of the important salient features are. And there are other ways of doing this. Can we do this directly rather than going through the object? 
but actually sort of operations neural operations would do. It was they would happily have something like a two-dimensional feature representation of the surface, but they then need to recover where these contours might be. And one way of doing it is just actually to do a center surround operation in Euclidean space. So you have a small center and consider all the points in a small location and consider what their average position is. And then you consider all the points in a larger operation and subtract the two and find where the difference is greater. And if you do that, you get these red points, which are again uh, isolated where these contours are will be. So now an operation which was started off as visual and requiring projection has now turned into a simple neural operation. And we know that the brain is very good at this. It's actually when you look at things, the things you tend to look at first of all are what's known as salient features. They're the ones that turn up because they're the different, greatest distance in feature space from their neighbours. So we can start perhaps looking at ways of representing these um, different objects and different embedded manifolds. And this is how they can perhaps be treated. So although you have a moving object, which might be, have have to be represented in seven or eight dimensions. The neural representation can involve a two-dimensional surface with these different feature space characteristics, which you can operate on in center-surround operations. So I think these are the main conclusions I want to come to. Firstly, that mathematical objects like the flat torus, climb bottle, and real projector plane are useful for exploring the brain, how the brain manipulates data structures, because their properties are well characterized. And I think I'd certainly like to go back and perhaps look at exact representations of the contours on those structures. And the brain has the capability to form Euclidean embeddings of data structures, such as the torus or climb bottle, by using population vector coding. And thirdly, that simple neural center surround operations of feature maps can be used to isolate the salient parts of the data structures, which are then held in working memory. So this is a way of perhaps how we start off with these manifolds, which are complicated structures, which can then be embedded into ones that the brain can actually use. And just to compare it with mass, this is perhaps how a mathematician would look at this in the sense we can, if you want to understand the solid object, you could slice it and then you get a feel for how it's changing at each level and you can say which are the points where you get changes in the gradient, like on the torus on the right, you get these four ones which are the actual giveaway of what's happening there and the curvature there. Why doesn't the brain use that approach? I think, first of all, it can't naturally slice things, so it has to use uh, a more abstract approach. And the second thing is, a mathematician can do this because he knows, say, he's dealing with one torus and not a torus and a couple of donuts stuck together. Whereas the brain doesn't know what's out there. It doesn't have any idea which objects or how many objects are out there. So it has to choose a much looser way of uh, representing things. And finally, because I'm interested in um, dynamics, really, uh, and the movement, one of the things we've been looking at, Rich and I, is in um, eye movements and nystagmus. This is where you get a disorder, and sometimes the eyes, instead of staying steadily, they can either move away and flip back like that regularly, or they can move from side to side in a more pendular fashion. This is one actually shows a, a, a jerk one where you're moving away. And any dynamical system like that, which is mechanical, you can embed by the method of delays. You take a time series measurement of the eye position as it's moving from left to right horizontally. You take, say, separated at 20 milliseconds, 40 milliseconds, 60 milliseconds, and 80 milliseconds. And that gives you four points in four-dimensional space. And actually, we've done that sort of thing. And we know that, although we initially started looking at it as a three-dimensional system, we know that it actually gets, on the return phase when it's coming back, it actually becomes four-dimensional. So just simply understanding simple dynamical systems like that, how do we represent that? And this is what I've shown here. The, I've shown, uh, this is a, a delay space embedding in four dimensions of the eye movements. What you've got is, the, at the right at the center, is the center of point of fixation. Along the top there, that broad line curving away, is the slow drift away as it moves away. 
And the very big round bit with lots of the colored points on is where you make the fast saccade backwards. And then the final bit is where you actually finish the saccade at the end. And interesting, if you look at it coming back to its final saccade there, what I plotted there is you've got two dimensions for two delay points, and then you've got red, green, and blue, yellow for the next two delay points. And you can see a difference in the color along those ones, which is where we're finding evidence of that fourth dimension. The ones on the outside are light green. The ones on the outside are much bluer. So this is a nice visual way of seeing something which we hadn't been able to pick up earlier on. We had to pick up by stats. So we're really, when you analyze something like this and you've got a fixed point, you want to actually know what's happening to the stable and unstable manifolds coming in. And I'm looking to this to see whether we can actually improve the way we represent this information. For example, this particular viewpoint was one chosen so the contours will be most robust against movement of the observer. And this is not a method of presentation we've used before, but this is something that might look. Okay, thank you very much. That's all. Thank you. Thank you very much. Uh, we're open for questions. Cle questions of clarification or anything else? Uh, welcome. If you want any more. By the way, I meant to say, I've been bringing along a few copies of some outline notes or on, some, on the talk. If you want to hear more of this. Yes. Uh, and an examination afterwards. Oh, is that right? Yes. I think we should uh, just clarify the centre surround bit because people don't know. Oh, okay. Um, so most on the visual side, most of the neural operations, um, right starting in the retina, is that uh, they look exactly like that in terms of actually if you plot where a point of light and move it across a bit of the visual field, that's something out there, you move the stimulus across and you find single neurons respond. They have a center bit which they respond very positively to and gives a brood response and an outer ring, an annulus, where they're inhibited by. So if you put a stimulus of light in the outside ring, they stop. So that's just a difference between the center uh, and the surround, and the actual response is due to the difference between the two. Although that's done very simply to understand in the physical side, uh, at the light level, light level side, by the time we come to higher up, we've got maps, and even at the motor cortex cell, this sharpening operation is done simply by the same neural operation, but no longer related to the external stimulus of where there's a point of light there. But it's a very common operation, and, and very easy to understand how you could do it with a dendritic field, which has just simply a Gaussian profile, and another one in it. Do you want me to ask another question then? <laughs> I think they're probably ready to go now. Okay. I was just saying, how could you extend this work to other sort of uh, disciplines? Well, I, I think the nice thing is that um, we're very lucky in the eye movement side, it's quite low dimensionality, but mm. the idea is maybe, I don't know, other movement disorders, maybe Parkinson's and something like that, might be eight or nine dimensions, and we need to be able to look at that and understand those sort of, how we represent those movements. Mm. So I think that's the... And, uh, or could it be, I mean, I suppose you could apply this way. We have complex information that we need to see, like a climate, or really be applicable there, where you want to present complex information from a scenario, and it could be presented in a sort of a convenient picture. I think so, although I suppose I wanted to slightly change it from... There's a lot of work on computer side on the visualisation, and making optimum representations for people to visualise. This was really to make it for perhaps numeric data, where you've got um, stuff that could be plotted in Euclidean space. And really, for that, I think we could just see it at a glance. Uh, and, but yes, it'd be interesting to know if there's data, any data like that, which is Euclidean, basically, that, and that's not so often. 
I think the beauty of this representation is you don't really need fantastically sophisticated mathematics. No. Thank goodness. <laughs> okay. Well, thank you all very much for your attention, and thank you very much. Thank you.